Today's Power Talk is titled Electrification, Decentralization, Decarbonization, and Digitization. It's a continuation of our conversation with Brian. It was very interesting to hear about the challenges that our electric grid faces from someone who is responsible to solve those challenges. We discussed building a spaceship to Jupiter, $3.5 billion of energy storage contracts, smart appliances, and the way all of this ties into reliable electricity. Power Talk is a series of conversations about the changing electric grid, how you can leverage new technologies to increase your reliability while lowering your bills, and how to safeguard yourself. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Power Talk. My name is Nate Woods, and I'm coming to this with a little over 15 years of cat dealer marketing experience. Beside me, as always, is Greg Lamberg, who's coming to this with over 30 years of utility power experience. And to my other side, we're honored to have Brian, who is also coming to this with over 30 years of electrical power experience. Uh, today's episode, we've got a couple bullet points we want to talk about. Uh, electrification, decentralization, decarbonization, and digitization. So, Greg, would you mind kind of teeing up uh, the topic for us, help us understand exactly what we're going to be discussing? Great. Thank you, Nate. And um, I think we've touched on all these topics, but these are kind of the megatrends in the uh, in the electric utility industry right now. Electrification with regards to, especially in the transportation sector, the home appliance sector, uh, decentralization with regards to more and more distributed energy resources, uh, both in front of and behind the meter. But, you know, no big power plants anymore. Things are smaller and smaller. We're producing power at the residential level. We're producing power behind the meter at the industrial and commercial level. So we'll talk about that a little more. Decarbonization, which is an overlying theme, which is driving uh, electrification and decentralization. And then digitalization, which is, uh, in theory, the fabric that's going to hold all of this together as we uh, as we pull it all together. So uh, I think we've touched on each of these briefly, but I, I think from uh, some of the feedback from our listeners, I, I think it just makes a lot of sense to deal with these four megatrends in one episode, especially when we have Brian Bertacci here, who's the general manager of Electric Utility, who can really give us the uh, the utility perspective of how they're grappling with, uh, with all these changes and megatrends in real time. Mm, Got to agree. Got to agree. And, and Brian, it, it really is sincerely an honor to have you here. Thank you for doing that. Uh, not a Peterson customer, not even in Peterson's territory. And you said a number of things on the last episode uh, that were rather eye-opening to me. And one of them I, I can't quite wrap my mind around just yet. I'm hoping you maybe can explain it a bit more. Is you were talking about a spaceship to Jupiter, yeah. <laughs> which is a great line. And uh Maybe if you don't mind, kind of kind of start on that. And why did you pick that as an analogy, and and what does it mean? Thank yeah, that's that's very kind introduction. Um, I think what I you know what I truly mean by that is we need a constructive argument about where we're going because if we, we all want to be successful, whatever we choose as a nation to do, we need to be successful. To do that, we need a constructive argument, and we need a plan based on some constructive arguments. So when I say spaceship to Jupiter, I'm relating and, and I'm proposing that. Where we're headed with the electric power industry, the standards and the regulatory rules that we've set for ourselves, the electric cars by 2030, 2035, moving you know all the way from natural gas-fired water heaters, natural gas-fired heat you know in your house. How are we going to do that? What's the plan to do that? And I think it's very equivalent as if we all decided as a group that we were going to send a spaceship to Jupiter with a million people, right? It's not a small task. It has a lot of cost associated with it a lot it's very extremely technically competent uh complex technically yeah. complex 
And so how are we going to go about doing that? So as an example, you know, one of your first topics here is really electrification. And let's just talk about EVs because I think a lot of EVs being electric vehicles. electric vehicles. And we tend to right now when we talk that people think it's just, you know, your personal vehicle, but it's way larger than that. Right. And so what a lot of general managers are saying that may very well be listening to this conversation is we're all seeing the smartest folks are coming in first because they're, they're investing a lot of money. A lot of big box companies, and I won't mm -hmm. use those names, but that have fleets of vehicle that deliver stuff to folks or have fleets of vehicles for other reason, they're, for, they're, the, they're smart and they're first in line to try and get whatever capacity is remaining in our existing infrastructure to be able to support electrification of their vehicles that they're using. And we're talking about the, the vehicles anyone would just see on any day driving yeah. down, this, down the road. Yeah, and, and it's not just even private organizations, it's also public. We're seeing, I've got the general manager of the utility right next to me. He has the, the county transit company, you know, it's a 10 MVA charging station. And that 10 MVA is technically complicated, right? It has huge you know, it, it, it fires, you know, all of a sudden you've got a 10 MVA load and then nothing, right? You've got a huge power factor issue, right, with that load. Um, and then the last remaining bits of your capacity, like say, you know, back to what keeps us all up at night in the electric power industry, pick one substation within my territory. That substation has a certain amount of capacity, right? That transformer has a certain size. The materials and equipment, the cables, the wires, the bus work has a certain capability of size. That's, that's a physical limitation. Physical limitation, and there's only so much left. And so imagine how complicated that is now for a lot of general managers and organizations out there because you got parties coming in and say, I want you know, to add 6% of load <laughs> to your entire you know, organization much less to that particular substation could be a 25, 35% increase to that substation. And when I give it to them, what happens to the next guy trying to get on the flight to Jupiter? You know, do we say no? And in fact, you know, you think about it even further, when we're stressing all the infrastructure, what happens on a peak day? Mm. And for us, which is interesting in the Northwest, our peak isn't summer like California, it's the middle of winter where everybody's trying to keep their pipes from freezing and people staying warm. I've got primary residential customers, so what are my choices? Do I let the big company charge their, if I have to brown out because there's not enough infrastructure, do I let the big company keep charging their trucks to deliver food and, and books and all the stuff to people's houses, or do I cut off the old people and the families in their residences? That's the, that's the spaceship to Jupiter problem. When we don't have a plan, and we don't, that's where we're at right now. So a lot of folks, I think from, especially California, Washington, Oregon, we're really, a lot of utilities are struggling because we're rapidly approaching that break point, right? Where we're consuming the remaining infrastructure we have with no plan for what we do after that. And that's why we talked about in the previous thing, the only solution, right? Because there's no plan, the only solution will be able to really increase price and do time of use and cut people off. Uh, having some organized way we cut people off of, of supply. So, so if that's what keeps you up at night. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about myself. Let's let's just say that where my house is, I share a substation with with a transport company or with one of these shipping companies. 
Um, so I guess what would keep me up at night as, as just a person who consumes electricity is, holy cow, my electricity might get shut off at the hottest part of the day in a record heat wave. And if I'm running an electric vehicle and I can't charge it overnight, so what what on earth can uh, just a humble ratepayer, just a humble citizen do yeah. uh, looking and, at this? And I'll take that a little farther before Please. we even go there, which is um, one interesting thing that's changed too in the industry. I can't tell you how many times this, especially with COVID hit, more and more people are working remotely. Mm-hmm. So having power at their house 24 by seven has become huge to them. And in fact, the reality of it is folks that are a little older, they are more familiar with having the power out and being comfortable with the power being out and not worrying about it, not having the internet or not having the TV. But as you look at folks in that younger age group, I I can't tell you how many times I've been out on a street where we're having an outage because some car hit a pole or we've got a, we're upgrading infrastructure because the infrastructure is too small, you know, and we've got to shut people down for like four or five hours to be able to replace like a wire, you know, cable. I, a lot of people run out from their homes and be screaming at me epitaphs and, you know, I, you can't cut my power for two hours. You know, my, I got my kids home. They're doing, you know, they're st- doing their school studies from home. I'm working from home, you know, and I mean, literally threatening my crew. And I've had people come oh, out with, gosh. you know, I mean, it, it's, and, and that's just not Elmer's. That's everywhere. So people are a lot more sensitive to their infrastructure, but at the same time, there's very little thoughtfulness about what we're doing to the infrastructure. It's really interesting that the desire to have stable and reliable infrastructure is accelerating and going up and up and up. Right. But the care and thoughtfulness about how we're managing all this infrastructure that took us 150 years to build is going down and down and down and down. Well, and I, I might have derailed you a little bit because uh, we were talking about uh, the electrical vehicles, electrical vehicles in particular. Um, and you're talking about like huge loads, say from a, a transportation hub. But what would we look at if if we electrified, let's say, I don't know, 25 or 50 percent of the vehicles out on the road? Um, how big of a of a problem is that for the utility to tackle? It's huge. I mean, that's another thing I told you keeps me up at night. When I look at those statistics and I look at how much load it, it, co- it takes in somebody's individual home to charge one of these electric cars, and again, you have two people with their electric cars. Granted, they don't run it all the way down, mm-hmm. depending on your commute, right? But you still have to plug it in at some point and it's got to charge and it's happening when there's no solar and there's likely no wind at night. So it's a big issue. But again, what concerns me even more is the discussion we were having about how do I, who do I interrupt, right, for supply? Because eventually this is reaching a supply choke point and who do I interrupt? And you know, and I'm sympathetic with both sides. You got uh, you got a big corp that or a city that's invested all this money in electric vehicles, and they're a big employer. Who do I cut off, right? I mean, and do I cut off? It's back to the Lexus lane we talked yeah. about too, right? How is that going to actually work? Well, the big guys, that's an incremental small part of their entire business chain model, right? For cost. Are they willing to pay two or three or four times what they're paying for that electricity to support, you know, having those electrical fleet, electric fleet of vehicles? Sure. The, the couple that's on a fixed income that's 70 years old that's sitting in their house and the temperature's 32 degrees or 25 degrees, can they afford to pay four times the amount of money for electricity to have the heat on at night there? Mm-hmm. And, and so right now we're headed down a path of TOU. We talked about time of use where... 
It's like the Lexus line. You can afford it, you don't care. And, and in fact, even if, if, if the electricity is not available, those same parties have diesel generation <laughs> to support their needs. N not only at the corporate level, but also at the personal level. Look at how many folks that are wealthy have put in diesel backup generation at their house. But all the other folks can't afford to do that. The propane or, yeah. or, or, or yeah. natural yeah. gas. Natural or, gas or, or even... Even energy storage. It's right. You know, but yeah, the people are taking matters in their own hands. So you're, you're talking about like, what, what are you to do? But what if we drag that out a little bit and, and we look at your peers, other utility companies, uh, what decisions have already been made in terms of who, who is actually getting bumped right now in, in the United States? Well, you know, that's not really well reported as far as I've looked. I've okay. looked, and I haven't been able, nobody really reports that as a statistic, probably for a lot of obvious reasons, but I think we all hear plenty of stories. You look at a lot of locations where you have parties coming in asking for this amount of power, and there's a lot of utilities, even in California, that are saying no, or they're asking an absorbent amount of dollars to study it to say whether they can do it at all. And, and this is back to the plan, right? I mean. We're encouraging some of these large, you know, for-profit companies that deliver stuff to our health with good reason to reduce their carbon footprint. They're going way out of their way to do it, investing a lot of capital, but we haven't done anything to plan for behind, for that issue, for how do we support them in the direction that they're taking, right? And it's not just the big guys. I've got developers out there that are this, the guy who just owns that piece of property, and for his retirement, he's selling it off and he's trying to put a warehouse in there and he mm -hmm. comes along and says, I need, you know, 1500 KVA, you know, which is still, you know, not huge, but not small. And you can't even get the, the transformer delivery right now is literally two to three years out for that guy's trying to develop that property for his retirement income. Yeah. He, he can't get the bank to loan him the money. He can't find somebody to actually, you know, invest or take on a long-term lease of the warehouse. Because, you know, I, I can't give them a will serve that says the transformer is going to be here on a certain date and I can serve you. I don't even know if I can get it from my upstream supplier. And, and remember, it, it's back to, there's limit, you go all the way back to the other end. There's limits on the generation, right? And the regulatory front limits what kind of generation I could use, right? I got to get it to me in a transmission line. I've got to get it out in my distribution system. And then we all have to maintain all that infrastructure on top of that. And again, I, I'm an advocate. I'm just looking for the constructive argument for how do we make all this work? You know, that's what we really need that, out there. That might blend kind of well into decentralization um, in, in terms of like, how do we make that work? I guess, Greg, do you, do you have more thoughts on the electrification piece to be, did we roll over that too quickly or? Um, I, I think a couple more things that might be interesting. You mentioned, you, you know, the notion that some of these decisions that haven't been made, um, I, I think some of these decisions are going to have to be revisited. I mean, you know, as states are moving forward, for example, um, you know, demonizing and basically making the internal combustion illegal, um, you know, is it realistic to suspect, to, to expect, like, for example, in California by 2035 that we're not going to have any um, internal combustion engines in, in vehicles? Are we going to be able to support uh, that amount of EV structure? And, you know, what Brian's suggesting here is, and I, I've thought this a long time, is there, there's really no plan. There's no understanding of cost. Um, and if we had a plan and we had the money to accomplish that, could we, could we supply all the materials necessary to do it. So, and, and, and I think if we, 
as an energy sector, if we could have a constructive argument on this stuff, I, I think a lot of folks could agree on the destination yeah. where we want to go, right? Sure. Yeah, I think a lot of folks could agree on the destination we want to go. But a lot of it is the time frame we're driving at, right? Look, a lot of these rules are coming in in 2030, 2035. Maybe we need a, not a five-year plan or a seven-year plan like we got now, which is, and there isn't a plan, we just a, a five years out, we're going to do it. We're, t- we're leaving for Jupiter in five years. Where's your ticket? You can't even buy a ticket to get to Jupiter, you know, for 2030. Um, you know, maybe that should be a 50-year cycle. Or, or we should have the constructive argument and dig into enough of the details to come up with even a generic plan and ask ourselves, is this, how long should we, what period should we use? It's like managing any project, right? Any project manager will tell you the same thing. You know, you're trying to fit this into a box that is unfittable, right? It's just spilling out and breaking the box open. So maybe this should be a 30-year plan or a 50-year plan. I'm sure it's not going to be successful as a five-year plan right now. Brian, what what you said in uh, our last episode is that it took 150 years to get the grid as it is today. And so what you're talking about, about uh, maybe a five-year plan isn't realistic, um, that makes perfect sense to me because... A 50-year plan would still be one-third of what it took to get the, the grid as it is today. And that yeah. even sounds a bit aggressive. Yeah, and, and, I'll, and, and let's, let's parse that a little bit because we're all so used to right now technology, especially our heads are all wrapped around the Internet. Look how fast stuff has changed with the iPhone and, and the, what we do on the Internet. So our minds think that the rest of our infrastructure can be transcribed and adjusted in that same time frame, but it's just not realistic. And let me take it one more step because we're talking about electricity and, and Greg and I have had this discussion many times in the past. You know, the secret for a civilization to be successful is to have a low cost of energy for everybody. But that spills over into creating water, our fresh water. Imagine how much electricity it create, it, caught, it takes to pump and filter and manage our fresh water. Same thing with our sewage and disposing of our sewage. If I asked you today and I, so I took infrastructure and said infrastructure's Wastewater, you know, your sewage. We had a great talk with uh, Marty Hopkins on this exact subject. Oh, great. So it's your fresh water and your electricity. If you had to pick between having internet access and having electricity, water, and sewer in your house at any given moment of where we should divert our resources, what would most people say? Internet, for sure. I know. That's, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. So, and, but that's, and that's how we're acting. Because and that, water and electricity are a given. I mean, yeah. people don't even think about it. And that gets back to part of the earlier part of this conversation is, you know, with, with, with the lights going out, people, you know, in amazement, if the light doesn't come on, uh, many people don't even think about electricity um, until it's not there. It's just a given. It's it's a uh, they don't think about water until it's not there. I think people are going to be thinking about water this summer in California for sure. Well, a person can go three days without water, and I, I know some people probably can't go three minutes without checking social media. Yeah, so uh, it would definitely be internet. But uh, no, these these are these are these are vexing challenges. They they, they really are. And uh, to your point with regards to schedule, I, we we may have mentioned this uh, in a, in a past episode, but uh, California is actually trying to expedite the schedule. They're saying 2040 is too late. You know, it needs to be 2030, 2045 for 2030, 2035 for complete decarbonization. Yeah. And they hired some consultants, E3, and right. another consultant to look at this. <laughs> and right. the, the results were given to CARB, and it showed that accelerating the schedule by five years would result in a loss of over a half a million jobs a year and increased costs of about $100 billion. Is that nationwide or just California? That was just California. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, I'd like to, I'm, and I'm seriously mean that I'd like to compliment Peterson and others because looking at all the renewable fuels that is going into some of the reciprocating engines these days, which can make it way more acceptable piece of generation, it's back to if we had that longer term plan, there may very well be a good fit for all that to try and get us to Jupiter where we want to go, right? But it just take a longer term. So what, what are we going to do in the interim? We're, you know, look, let's talk about, there's so many issues to talk about. Look at Diablo Canyon in California. Diablo Canyon was a huge, incredible resource for California, but what a lot of the public doesn't understand is how it was well paired with Helms project up in the Sierra Nevadas up there, right? So, and, and for our listeners, real quick, Hel- Helms is a pumped storage, storage. project. Nate and I have discussed pump storage uh, quite a bit uh, in, in previous episodes, but uh, it, it is one of the largest pump storage projects in the nation, and largest in California. And I'm sorry, I just want to no, and, inject and, that for our and, listeners. And, and I had a period of time where I was privileged to be able to manage Helms as a project. Um, That's you know, right. You ran all the generation for Pacific Gas Electric okay. Company one time. Not nuclear, right? Not nuclear. You know, so, uh, Long and the short of it is, nuclear tends to not want to cycle up and down, right? It's gr- it's great, it's it's wonderful when you can run it twenty four by seven at its maximum output, right? And so Helms was built as a sister facility. It's a giant pub storage. So at night, when load is low, all that electricity on effectively a separate transmission line, you know, went to Helms, pumped that water up literally over eighteen hundred feet, and that water was used during the day. And that's the main AGC control, which is the frequency control to maintain frequency. You know, when people throw on a light switch and it goes on and off to move up and down quickly, that's what Helms does every day, all day long. And I tell you the truth, I've searched a little bit online to understand with Diablo Canyon's plan shutdown, how are they going to keep Helms running? How is Because it's back to the same thing. Look at how this load is changing and the load will shift to all this charging at night by all these on all this EV front. Mm-hmm. And where is that going to come from when it's dark and the wind's not blowing? Um, it, it, it's kind of, so how do you charge Helms up and still keep a Helms for frequency control? I, I'd love to know. I'd love somebody out there, if there is a study or somebody's figured it out, I would love to know. But, I mean, that's a microcosm of the issues that are happening everywhere. We have lots of pressure to shut generation down. There's, there's forces that want to, re- and for good reason, there's forces that want to remove the lower three Snake River dams. Um, there's a lo- all sorts of gas fire projects being shut down, coal fire projects. And, and, and these projects, again, also have gone under a large transition in, in my career where they went from being polluting to the pollution levels now are so driven so low by the, by the regulatory issues. It's a shame to see those super assets that we've all paid for being shut down when there's no plan of how we're going to replace them to provide reliability, right? We've seen growth in wind and solar, but again, wind and solar does not equal reliability. They, they really are, and, and the batteries are so short-term, they're expensive. We start looking at, and I remember I saw that statistic the other day we were talking about, I heard that statistic on the on, on you know one of the financial channels about 500,000 pounds of earth needs to be excavated to make one electric car battery. Mm-hmm. And we're expanding that at a, the plan is a giant expansion of that. And, and again, the infrastructure behind that, imagine the environmental damage we're gonna do to the United States to support all the materials for all these transformers we need, all the wire that we need, all the poles that we need, all the little bits and pieces we need, you know, especially if they're not gonna be done overseas, 
where it's out of our sight and out of our mind. But if we do it here and couple it with all the battery stuff, it's it's mind boggling. Well, yeah, and also the geopolitics of some of these materials. Uh, Nate and I have discussed this in earlier episodes. Is is uh, is significant with regards to we can't do it all here, even if we wanted to. And some of the areas of the world and some of the nations that we would be dependent upon to provide those materials um, aren't necessarily the most friendly nations in the world or the most stable nations. So that's that that's a huge challenge as well. And you know, uh, going back to Diablo Canyon. I mean, there's some debate now, you know, in California as to whether it should stay or whether it should go. And personally, I believe the train's left the station. I believe it's gone. I, I believe that uh, if there weren't federal funds involved, that there, there wouldn't be any interest on behalf of the state of Indian looking at it any further. But the fact of the matter is, is that the carbon intensity of generation in California will go up with the shutdown of Diablo Canyon. Can, can you draw that out? Why, for, for our listeners, why does the carbon go up when you take nuclear offline? Because when you take nuclear offline, Diablo Canyon uh, represents about 10, uh, about 10 to 15 percent. Well, well, some quick numbers. Diablo Canyon is about 10 percent of the energy consumed in California. It represents about 15 percent of the carbon-free energy in California. So when you look mm-hmm. at 10 percent of the energy consumed and you try to replace that, uh, an example is PG&E just got nine energy storage contracts approved which were posed publicly as part of the replacement for Diablo Canyon. Uh, the cost is about $3.5 billion. How many of those are lithium-ion? Uh, it's all lithium-ion. It's all lithium-ion. And when you look at the cost, about, at about 3 to $3.5 billion. Uh, and I actually did the math on this, that, th- that you know, where Diablo Canyon can provide 2,400 megawatts 24-7, okay, the, uh, I think it was like 6.4 gigawatt hours, you know, but... The replacement, this battery replacement uh, for $3.5 billion, if you look at how, how much power can it provide to the state throughout the day, it's a little over 12 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that was, I wanted to add to that conversation. So we're all, so as, as a lot of general managers, right, we're all concerned about being able to make these loads when there's all these load swings, right? Right. Um, so what do you do, right? You, you, you can't, there's no way you could permit traditional generation just about anywhere, especially for me in Washington state. So your options are to look at battery storage in your substation. So for me as a utility, about 60% of my cost structure for my customers is my BPA contract, right? To supply the energy. And a, a good chunk of that, literally about you know, 10% of that number of my energy cost is in demand charges and load, you know, following, you know, frequency control effectively, right? And so I could help mitigate that if I put a battery in a substation. But again, the downside, as everybody sitting here knows, it's expensive, it's short term. What happens when the battery runs down, right? There's, it's, it can't operate 24 by 7 when I need it to. Um, and then even more so, it, it, just talking big picture things here too, long term there's been energy efficiency. Washington State with BPA, it's a big issue. I get a certain amount of dollars that come out of that contract every year that goes into a fund that I can only use with my customers for energy efficiency. That's been going on for so long that the returns have kind of diminished on that, right? I mean, you can only give people so many LED light bulbs. You can only do so much insulation in people's homes. 
Uh, you can only do so many heat pumps, and most of the heat pumps go to people that are wealthy enough to be able to do that too. So, you know, you know, those dollars that are out there could be way more effectively used right now to be able to put because we can't, since we can't do any other generation, we could put batteries in the substation to help mitigate this spaceship to Jupiter issue, um, at least to help defer it a little bit because you know it moves that breaking point when we break. Um, but uh, I'm, you know, I've, I've been an advocate of trying to move those funds over so we could use those for long-term debt to support batteries in a lot of our substations. Right. And I think a lot of people would do that if we could use that money for it. But again, it's, it's back to there's no NASA, there's no space program, nobody's really thinking about that. There's a great source of funds that between the m dollars I could save in those demand charges, and those energy efficiency funds, if I could have them long term to support the long term debt, I could probably put a utility grade battery in my substation. You know? But but it's just not happening. The other thing happening is you'll hear from a lot of people too. It's amazing the public pushback for there's folks trying to put in batteries that they put in batteries, now they're trying to do the next set and the public won't have anything to do with it. They don't want it in their community. They don't want the solar installation in their community. I think that's kind of not is an ignored topic that is uh, another difficult issue for a lot of general managers. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we at Peterson, we are doing something about it. Uh, like the, the small munis like yourself, uh, we understand that you guys want to understand the value proposition of storage at the substation level. And uh, within the next few months, we will have uh, portable storage available uh, on trailers. These are 20, 20 foot long trailers uh, that you'll be able to rent. For uh, you know, four to six months, there'll be rent to purchase options, all kinds of yeah. options. But basically, a try before you buy, yeah. uh, so that the smaller munis can uh, get their get their toe in water with storage and understand if it if it makes sense for their system. And it's very very different because I I think my my impression is with storage on the Pacific Northwest, uh, many of the uh, utilities up here munis are looking at storage more as a transmission type asset. Oh, it it, it, sol where, it solves it solves both those issues, right? right. I mean, that's what. I've been an advocate of trying to get those dollars diverted for that because it helps everybody. But again, it's an uphill climb. Exactly. Where you know, in, in California, we're looking at storage as capacity um, to, to to solve the evening ramp, and I don't think it's going to work. So back to the question: Why is carbon intensity going to go up when you look at that evening ramp? You know, when you look at uh, backfilling the intermittency. If you go onto the Kaiso website, and I think we'll have a link to this on, the, on our, our webpage, mm -hmm. well, let's get the link update, but if you look at the supply stack for the day and you look at the curve for the day of supply, um, at the very bottom is that black line, which is the Diablo Canyon, which is 1,800 to 2,400 megawatts, 24-7 right. around the clock. Removing that is the functional equivalent of removing the foundation from a skyscraper. And everything is going to have to work harder, and the gaps are going to get bigger. And the only technology out there to fill those gaps realistically is natural gas. Hmm. It's going to it's going to have to get filled with natural gas. The state is going to have to keep the lights on, and it's going to get done with with natural gas. I don't think there's any two ways about it. It's it's not what your preferences are. It's the availability of choices to us, and, and what's going to be necessary to keep the system running. Well, so, I guess the the alternative would be you just stop supplying reliable electricity. If you're not going to do natural gas, if you're not going to do diesel, if you're not going to do nuclear, does that leave you with not supplying electricity? Well, just imagine if you own an ice cream store. How'd you feel about that? 
Well, <laughs> so, I, I mean, and, and it applies everywhere. I look at look at how dependent. Back to the topic we talked about before. Look at how dependent we all are on having electricity all the time. So I challenge you to go out and let, I'd love to go to my customer base and say, okay, how many of you are willing to be intermittent to be able to solve our spaceship to Jupiter problem? And if you ask for volunteers, what do you think you would get? And realistically, one percent, half a percent, maybe. Yeah, maybe tops at best. The the demand response, voluntary demand response, has not worked very well in the yeah. utility sector. And I think this tees up the next the next portion of this, which is decentralization. And mm-hmm. as the um, as the grid as a whole, uh, in front of the meter, uh, experiences more and more intermittency, and uh, its challenges become more and more apparent to. Uh, users, especially critical users, um, this is where decentralization will, will, will come in. And does decentralization live in front of the meter, behind the meter? Is it a bit of both? It is. It's a, it, it is a bit of both. Um, the system that Brian mentioned that took us 150 years to build uh, was essentially a centralized system where uh, the idea was large power plants were built in one of two places. Either they were built in load centers. Uh, to minimize transmission costs, or they were built where nobody lived uh, to minimize, uh, you know, uh, interference to society, so to speak. Where that, you know, you built them out in the desert and you 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 uh, built massive transmission lines to bring the, that power in. And uh, as we go to decentralized, um, you know, a nuclear plant used to be two to three thousand megawatts. Right, the paradigm for a nuclear plant right now is hundred megawatts to two hundred megawatts. So more decentralized, more, more, but but greater number, but fewer in, in capability. Um, gas fire plants. We used to build, um, you know, we used to build thousand megawatt gas fire plants all day long. When twenty years ago we were working at Calpine, you know, we built uh, we built one of the largest uh, portfolios of large gas uh, the world has seen, and that's not happening right now. We, you know, California ran into you know dirty little secret. California had a problem last summer and. You know, without any media coverage or without any press releases, they put 150 megawatts of gas in. There's little 30 megawatt generators, you know. Mm-hmm. We're doing a tremendous amount with 1.5 megawatt generators, 2 megawatt generators, 3 megawatt generators. So it's decentralized. It's kind of behind the curtain, but you can place it where the load is needed, uh, lessening the need for more transmission, which is a huge challenge. You, you're, you're seeing discussions about transmission problems uh, in the news right now. We never saw that before, where, where queues are just backed up with projects. Transmission is taking five, six, seven years to get built, where it used to take three or four. Ten years. Ten years, 20 years. I mean, it's just crazy. So the decentralization limits the, uh, limits the need for new transmission. And from the distribution perspective, if you can slip smaller resources into where the load is, exactly where it's needed, um, it can help limit the, uh, the stress on the uh, distribution system. Yeah, I think it, I, I can kind of take that kind of a next step because looking at, we're talking about decentralization a little bit. You know, I, I prefer to look at the glass half full rather than empty, right? Mm-hmm. Be positive, trying to solve our spaceship to Jupiter problem. Um, time of use pricing. So all this new infrastructure metering is going to allow time of use pricing. We'll take that to the next step. That becomes an arbitrage, right? For how many people? Because so you can take it all the way down to the individual sitting at his house. If all this infrastructure worked right, I could have a battery in my house and I could let the computer look at what's going on and it's going to charge up my battery through the grid at the cheapest time during the day 
and then push it back out either in my house or out into the grid at the highest price time during the day. That's looking at it all the way at the one end of the railroad tracks, mm -hmm. right? And versus, like Greg said, as a utility, I can do the same thing on a utility scale, right? Where I can try and mitigate a lot of my costs and problems by installing a battery for four hours. Maybe I'll be able to get, pick a number, 50% of my excursions, you know, to avoid a brownout with that battery, but that's better than zero, right? And, and plus I can arbitrage and make money off it to help pay for the infrastructure itself. Right? So why isn't that getting done? Um, I, because of the, it, the market's volatile, when nobody knows where it's at. We're kind of, we're not at the, I keep saying we're just at the cusp. We're just right now kind of sucking up the, the remaining infrastructure in these utilities, you know, as we're marching, as we're starting to build the spaceship to Jupiter, right? And so just give it another two years. And that's another concern keeps me awake at night. I've been boggled. You know, I grew up in California, uh, you know, very active in the West, but in, especially in California with some of the history Greg and I worked together in California, is uh, there's just no accountability for bad decisions that are going on. And, and you, it's amazing that it's back to the folks that are really in control and power seem to not go without power and they don't care about the price. And look at the price increases that have gone on. In Cal and so California's at the cusp of all this. And I'm not arguing with the decision. I'm arguing with the fact that there's no plan to make it all work. I want to make sure we're clear with all of our listeners, right? Yeah, yeah. So when, when we say uh, spaceship to Jupiter, so that, that's not a pejorative. We're not saying it's a foolish thing. I think no. everyone would love to have reliable electricity that comes from renewable means that doesn't, doesn't pollute the world. I think we're all... We're all big supporters of that. Um, it, it's kind of a question of how, it's a question of when, a question of resources. Yeah, when you say resources, what are we willing to give up? It, so if we're on an accelerated schedule of five years, what are we willing to give up to make that happen? Even if we could come together and have that you know, smart, constructive argument and come up with some plan that says it's 30 years, it's still back to what are we willing to give up to have that 30-year plan? And again, I, until we study it and come together um, as a group, we don't even know what it's going to cost and what the plan looks like. What's Nobody's the roadblock to, to having that discussion? Why isn't that discussion being had? You know, I, these problems are large and complex. I, I just, I'll, I'll take it down to a microcosm, and not a, not a real microcosm, but Washington State, right? California looks at reliability. Supposedly, the Cal ISO is there that's appointed by the governor to solve reliability issues. There's really nothing in Washington state that exists for that. So everybody's been talking for years now about, do we create an RTO? What, you know, what do we create in Washington state to be able to ensure that there's enough reliability going forward? Nothing has come of that argument because it, you got a lot of varied interests. You know, the interests of a Se Seattle Power and Light are very different than the interests of Elmhurst Mutual Power. Right. right, and an RTO is a regional transmission organization. So, right. Oh, sorry. excuse me. Yeah, an right. RTO is an organization. That we, I'm sorry, folks. We, we use a lot of TLAs. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> we're three-letter acronyms. Acronyms are our, yeah. our life. At least we understand each other. But um, yeah, it's a tr it's a regional transmission organization that actually looks at all the energy moving through a specific geographic region and, and how that balances out and how it serves a little. Yeah, and so for the listeners too, so how that works in a place like California or could in Washington State is that organization says. We need this much more generation by this year. And then they create a process where they go out to bid to supply that generation. And, and the generation needs to be defined as it 
fossil? Is it carbon? Is it battery storage? What is it? So to kind of flesh out that question. So that process is very complicated. I, I would challenge, it would be a great constructive argument uh, to say, has California been successful with the Cal ISO and the, and the PUC and the mechanisms they have to manage the electric power grid? I think the user out there, you know, down at his house that's getting brownouts and blackouts and is getting 19% or 20% price increases might not agree that that's successful. Um, yeah, just to paint that picture a little bit, I mean, I've, I've lived in the same residence of California for 23 years now, mm -hmm. and our load is, has remained flat. Uh, it's my wife and I, you know, we have one hot tub and one wine cooler, and, you know, it, our load is basically flat, and our bill has gone from electric and gas combined from 55 to $75 a month to $400 a month. Whoa. And, and so has it been successful? I, ar arguably not. But you know, one of the challenges in, in all this, to your point, Nate, is we used to go through a process in the utility industry called integrated resource planning, where <laughs> you're laughing, yeah, but I you know, know it's awesome. It's yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. nostalgic at this yeah. point, which, which which is almost criminal. But we used to go through a process called integrated resource planning, where we would look at load growth over a period of time, and what resources, what infrastructure, what's necessary to make sure that we can accommodate that low growth over a five to 10 year period. And then there would be a procurement plan, there'd be a you know, rate plan that would come out and things would get backfilled. And uh, that activity really has stopped. Everything now is, is regulatory and, and being regulatory driven. I, 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 I represent Peterson Power Systems at a number of regulatory proceedings mm -hmm. at the Public Utilities Commission. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is that there, historically, there was a large contingent of uh, consumer-focused uh, groups representing the consumer at these regulatory proceedings, and that's not the case anymore. They shroud themselves as if they're representing the consumer, but that's not, there's, there's nobody representing Jack and Jill anymore at these discussions. And, you know, the scientists have left the room, and, you know, it's the, uh, it's the cartoonists who are you know drawing the storyboards for the rocket to Jupiter, with uh, with no real plan of how to get there, and that's how decisions are being made. And and, and, and I'll choose to be positive again in my response to that. I'm trying to answer your question that, <laughs> that you asked, you know, which is I'm being negative. I'm just no, being no, pragmatic. No, I, I'm just painting the reality yeah, here. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get there always, right? And so, again, taking it back to my own little world microcosm. So. You're asking how come this stuff is, how come decisions aren't being made, how come it's not being done? Well, I'll, I'll reduce it for you. So I've got one particular substation that's 40 years old. I need to rebuild that substation. I got one of these big users is very near that substation, but I have another, a lot of other people that are talking about developing. What size do I build that substation for right now? <laughs> right? Yeah. I, how do I make that decision and who pays, right? So do I build it for my existing load? Do I guess? And you know, and that's back to no plan, you know. And, and, and these things, all. I'm, I'm assuming no. it's not easy to upsize a substation once built. It, 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 right, you got to build another substation or a different substation. And when I look at that substation, I have to think about upstream. You were asking the issue. It's a it's a different. So BPA is my you know energy supplier. But there's intervening parties for the transmission to get there, to get the power there. Mm. So as I start to upsize, <laughs> what's the impact there? How do I know I can get it? How do I know? Not, not only how do I get it from BPA and at what price, how do I get it to me? 
at what price and on a reliable reliable basis. And that carries you back to all these unanswered questions. Do I make that next party interruptible? And imagine you as a business owner, I'm telling you, you're trying to develop your parcel or your, or your large company. And I'm telling you, sorry, you're interruptible. You're going to go make a mega million dollar investment to get to Jupiter. And I could any time say, well, you know, I'm not going to give you an engine or I'm going to cut your fuel for so, your engine. So is that is that what's driving the decentralization is the lack of reliability from the centralized source? Is that is decentralization a necessity? So I guess what I'm asking. I, I think there's two pieces to that. Yeah, I do. There, there's it. two yeah. pieces. One, um, decentralization has, has always been there, but it's it's somewhat driven by uh, the criticality of, of certain users and the necessity to have uh, to have reliability and redundancy uh, on their side of the meter. That, that's one piece of it. And that's really Peterson's wheelhouse. I mean, that's where we do a lot of our business. The other piece of decentralization is, uh, is almost a Band-Aid, if you will, because of the fact that uh, we haven't done integrated resource planning. And so, Decentralization is a much more expeditious way of filling holes, of patching potholes in the infrastructure, if you will, because it's quicker to deploy smaller resources on a smaller piece of real estate with a less severe environmental footprint than permitting something large that very often has superior economics uh, to something small. So I, I think those are really the two drivers. Would, would you add anything to that, Brian? No, uh, yeah, I think you said it all. Okay, so we, we've, we've dealt with decentralization. Decarbonization is a common theme. I think decarbonization is the vision that has, uh, is really driving this, uh, this, this trip to Jupiter. And uh, a lot of uh, what, what we're seeing is a result of uh, the societal desire to decarbonize the electric sector. Which um, exactly we, we could certainly be on board that, but you know what's the plan? We we need to have a plan, and we need to be real realistic and, and sober in our understanding of the cost of that plan and identifying uh, where those resources are going to come from to underpin that. Um, the last piece that we really wanted to talk about in this session was digitalization, and um, I think we've 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 touched on this. Uh, a little bit with regards to smart meters and stuff like mm -hmm. that, but um, I, what I've learned is they've done some really uh, innovative and interesting things with smart meters here in the Pacific Northwest, especially through the pandemic, and we haven't seen any of those things in California yet. We've touched on uh, there's going to be an ability of the utility to actually toggle appliance usage uh, within the house. Well, a lot of what's going on in California right now, uh, like smart thermometers, um, the utility is going to have the ability to, you know, set the temperature in your house or set your uh, set your air conditioning or heat usage, uh, if you agree to that as part of the demand response program. And in theory, you'll get paid for it. But this is part of the digitalization effort. But uh, Brian, maybe you could talk a little bit more about this. Some of the some of the interesting things that uh, went on during the pandemic. For example, I like I understand that uh, some of the load serving entities, the big utilities in California, still have billions. Of dollars in unpaid bills that have been forgiven during the pandemic and uh, you guys you you can't live in that kind of world at the municipal sector and uh, I think you had some very uh, innovative and uh, yet uh, yet compassionate ways 
of, of dealing with those challenges through uh, through digitization. So let me give you the microphone. I'm going to take my coffee and uh, enlighten us, if you will. Sure. We, I, you know, in Washington State, we had a mandate from the governor that we couldn't disconnect folks during that pandemic. The, the mandate went in a certain date, was lifted eventually uh, this last September, October. But, um, you know, of course, the problems with all that is that folks wind up with a huge bill that's outstanding and then they get disconnected and it's a bill they can't pay. But there were a lot of great organizations came out of the woodwork, and including government organizations, that helped offset that. And so it, it was pretty successful. We worked with, we put in 12-month uh, payment plans for those folks that we had that had a big outstanding bill. We helped them work with a lot of the third parties to try and get that bill paid off for them. And in many cases that happened. Bills as large as $6,000 got paid off by third parties um, to help the residential bills? Residential bills to help those folks get back on track. Um, you know, and there's still some of that outstanding, but again, and it's difficult, right? Because again, we're a co-op, we're not for profit. So when one person doesn't pay, the rest of the customers have to pay to support, you know, the cost that we have, you know, uh, so we're not for profit. Um, the metering again is getting, you know, way more uh, technically complex. Um, but it offers a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting capability. But, uh, but the, you know, just imagine out there right now, what's the standard? You, know, you look at, you got to create a standard for that stuff to work. Mm -hmm. Who's who's the standard agency? Again, there's no NASA, so there's everybody's kind of creating their own standard. They're kind of being forced to work together more and more to try and zero in on a standard. But if you don't have a standard, you can't do a lot of the things that they're trying to do, and they're going to be challenged to be successful because there's no real standard set by the federal government or a NASA out there to get the spaceship to Jupiter. I was telling and Greg on an earlier episode, so much of this reminds me of when we went to uh, tier three, tier four interim and tier four final on, on highway. And there was um, a county near where I grew up that purchased uh, fire trucks with these new engines and uh, ran out of the, the diesel emission fluid uh, responding to a house on fire and the engine deregulated and they limped to that home on about five percent fire uh, on about five percent power and of course it, it just burnt to the ground because well, it couldn't get there in time and I'm seeing a lot yeah. of similarities with, right. with you, this right here. You're asking a good question there and we're all as general managers of utilities we're all struggling with that issue because you know, the, the mandates for electric vehicles are coming, and we're trying to figure out how do you, the big line trucks we have, the bucket trucks, the pole trucks, you know, how do you manage those being electric, right? Because a lot of times what really is actually happening is we'll have a large snowstorm or a large windstorm, and we're out for two, three days straight cleaning all that up. So you come back in and charge the battery on the truck and stop working, that'll turn into a six day. And how do you get the electricity to charge the battery if the power's out because the lines are out, you know? Well, then also in the, in the colder climate, in the winter time, during, during your peak, uh, those electric vehicles, those batteries don't perform as well in, in the cold. Well, and, and some of their so power gets drawn into keeping your, your operator uh, warm enough that it's not a life-threatening situation. But but, yeah. but back to back to digitalization a little more on sure. digitalization. Um, how do, you, how do you see the, the, the you know smart meters and what's going on with the digitalization of this industry? Because the 150-year infrastructure we built, 
was was pretty dumb. <laughs> you know, it just it, it was on or it was off. But reliable. But reliable. <laughs> dumb but reliable. Well, you know what? I never had a problem with my stereo system until components got smart, and that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> Can you program some, it or not? Some things, no, <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> and it makes me feel old. But um, I I have problems I never thought I would have with uh, with with audio equipment these days. But having said that. How, how do you view digitalization um, in, in helping you to serve your customers and, and helping, you know, there, there's a role for digitalization on, on this journey to Jupiter that we're taking. And yeah. what, what are some of the, uh, what, what are some of the use cases that you see? There, there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot here in this discussion, but right. from customer perspective, it's just interesting to take it down. One of the most common uh, complaints we get is people want an outage map. So when the power is out, they want to know where is it out? Do I because like our call volume, call volume goes from 90 calls a day normally to like 1100 when there's outages going on a day mm-hmm. and managing out with the staff. So strangely enough, the new upgraded metering system, which integrates with our integrated software that we have, produces these outage maps really easily. So with the old metering technology, one way to answer your question. You couldn't do that with the new systems. It's the number one issue of it's fascinating, but that's one of the number one issues of the public right. to see where the outage is. So yeah, we that, want to see in California. People want to see where the public safety power shutoffs are planned. And that perfect example and yeah. why. So um, and then we talked about it a little bit in the last session, but so you know I work. I do. I'm doing. A, in fact, I'm converting it. We're converting Elmhurst meter. I had a 10-year plan to convert Elmhurst meter and to keep the cost down for folks. But we're putting in the initial infrastructure for all that, which is, you know, all the cellular, you know, gateways and all that stuff. Um, anyway, what's that stuff allow you to do? We talked about a little bit before is transitioning to this allows us to do the time of use we talked about. So you could eventually in the future, if we're going to hit that point with the infrastructure, I told you, where we're using up the last bit and then it's going to become price, right? Mm. And, and so... We'll be. I'm, I'm sure in the future of all utilities, I just don't see how we get around it unless we really start having that constructive argument, start planning all this, is it's going to be time of use is going to be the major driver and demand charges, right? So what's my overall demand? You get hit for that. And usually, uh, Greg will explain because uh, some of the listeners don't know, it's normally with demand charges, wherever you're at, they usually have a period. So think about it is... I want to, I, 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 we're in this room right here. I'm going to take a maximum of 100 gallons, let's talk about it in water, 100 gallons per minute, right? Okay. And, and one day I hit that peak, but the rest of the time I'm only taking one gallon an hour, right? But I have to pay for that because I had to design the capacity to get to you to supply you 100 gallons per minute. Right. So meaning that if I'm a shipping company and I say at some point I'm going to have 20 commercial vehicles all plugged in at the same time. Exactly. So I've got to put the infrastructure in to support that. That's the capacity charge. And a lot of times that's rolling over three years or 10 years. I mean, I had experience with California utilities where as, as a power plant developer, we would be stuck with a 10-year roll on that. So if we at one time took the 100 gallons per minute, we have to pay that 100 gallon per minute fee for 10 years. Say, say for the next 10 years, we kept it under 100 and went down to one. It would take 10 years to get that price down back to where it was. That's what I mean by demand charge, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the time of use charge, which will be the signal that says, you know, if you want to use electricity now, okay, but it's five times what it will be four hours from now, right? So if you delay, and, and so it, being constructive and being positive, 
if we create all the right infrastructure, you could hire you know, a big party like who knows, Amazon or Google or somebody to manage your power use for you who would turn on and off your appliances for you in the house. I, I set my dishwasher ready to go. The meter outside my house knows the dishwasher is ready to go. And so is the washing machine with my clothes in it. But the, the big guys out there, Google, whoever will decide based on or the utility or the government or whoever it might be, says your dishwasher or your clothes are going to get cleaned at 2 a.m., you know, and even give you a recommendation on your phone that says don't take your shower until 3 a.m., you know, yeah. you want to take a shower, get up and take it at 3 a.m. and go back to sleep because it'll cost you, you know, a couple bucks less. And that adds up every day. People struggling right now to make it day by day. They may very well take those opportunities. And the infrastructure is being changed to be able to do that. Again, we talked the other day. I, I work with a lot of these very large metering companies, and I'm, I'm working on, I'm playing system engineer part of the time because we're a small utility. So I'm hearing that from all of them. They're working on all the software with, you know, ChargePoint and all these charger companies, the big appliance manufacturers, to be able to integrate this into that, so the meter will be able to communicate with those devices in your house and the utility will be able to communicate with your house and your devices in your house that way. That's, that's the positive future. If, we, if, we, if we're not gonna plan Spaceship Jupiter, that's trying to be as positive as I can. That's kind of the solution for managing our constraint for resources, you know, supply versus load versus use. I think that's a pretty nice bow on top of uh, the digitization sector. Uh, what do you think, Greg? It is. I just I, I think it's just a question of uh, whether or not the consumer is going to buy into it and check their iPhone before they turn the appliance. Yeah, on. and Greg, I'd like to ask you a question because you're still working a lot down in California. So, what's the percent of per of generation people are putting in now? Like, what percent of the kilowatt hours in California are coming from people running? generation sets when the utilities can't supply or any idea what that number is? Very, very difficult to tell behind the meter. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, there's some 14 gigawatts right now of, so, of behind the meter solar, yeah. you know, that the Kaiso has a, has a tough time seeing. Right. Um, you know, what, what I can tell you is that uh, last year with regards to selling backup generation was our biggest year ever. This year is going to be bigger than next year. Yeah. Uh, lots and lots of inquiries, lots of people concerned, and uh, I, I, I just I, I think we'll we'll see more and more of that. And you know, one of the one of the cha one of the uh, challenges for Mission Jupiter, and you know, opportunities that, that we're seeing is as uh, costs continue to increase in front of the meter, it just makes you know it makes. Uh, distributed systems behind the meter more and more cost-effective. Typically, mm -hmm. distributed systems behind the meter were very expensive and they were in place for absolute emergencies. It wasn't about the cost of generating with a distributed energy system. It was about the cost of not being able to generate during an outage. Yeah. And uh, those economics are changing where it's getting very uh, economically viable to, uh, to self-generate behind the meter. Yeah. And then when you look at demand response, yeah. uh, where you know, when there are wholesale shortages and the state is offering incentives of up to $2 a kilowatt hour in times of need to, to self-generate, yeah. You know when you can uh, when you can capitalize upon that uh, with with digitalization and smart energy systems and generate during those periods, 
um, it just makes those uh, those uh, those resources and that infrastructure uh, it, it puts them squarely in the asset column. Yeah, and, and it's I I'm sympathetic and I find it very disheartening. There's so many folks that want to reduce the carbon footprint. But a lot of the impacts of not having a plan to do this are actually making it worse. Because I see that in our own territory. More and more people have their own generation at their house to support times when there's outages. And, and as things go forward in time, you're seeing it in a lot of locations where we start to head to this cliff of resource availability versus use. And I agree with you. More and more people are taking that advantage. And it's, it's unfortunate because the emissions from those individual generators is just crazy compared to how tight the emissions controls were on the natural gas fired plants of the day and even the right. coal plants, the stuff that we relied on for years and years. Well, you know, th those technologies have, uh, as we go into tier four and, 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 uh, and even higher levels of emissions controls, those technologies are, you know, hundreds of times cleaner than they were at the, at the tier two level. So there's been a lot to clean those technologies up. But, you know, at the same time, I, I personally would love to see a more holistic approach where the focus is, isn't just entirely on carbon, where we're looking at the life cycle footprint of different technologies. Absolutely. Oh, because some absolutely. of the technologies that are being embraced right now, holistically, from, yeah. from, from an environmental perspective, are, 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 uh, are a lot different than what people think they are. Uh, yeah, and, and, and Greg and I you know, did a lot of development in California. It was just so disheartening. You look at like Ivan Pond, all the tortoises that were killed as producing you know, that project down there. And then the density, how much land it takes to do solar, right. and all the heavy metals that are extracted out of the earth. And I, I agree with Greg, I really would love to see the constructive argument more about what the total impacts are to our, our environment and our society, and how is this best to get there? You know, what, back to the, you know, what's the scope of what we want to do? How fast can we afford or are able to do it with all the resources we need to commit, both in people and materials and dollars? So amazing, you know, and to stay positive, these are amazing opportunities. Yeah. Uh, this sector has never seen uh, a faster rate of change than what we're seeing right now. Uh, with that, I think we're, we're at about a point, let's wrap this discussion up for now. And uh, I've got a couple notes of uh, some things that I think we want to uh, touch on in, in a future discussion. But uh, really, thank you for being here today, Brian. Thank the listeners for, for listening in. Get us your questions uh, through, uh, through the various means we've offered you through the website or what have you. Get a hold of Nate, get a hold of myself. Uh, we have the, uh, we have, a, uh, an email set up. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So if you're listening to this on petersonpower.com, there's a button, uh, where you can submit your questions directly to Greg and myself. If you're listening to this on YouTube, uh, leave a comment. We, we do check those. We, uh, we love to see the comments come in and we've dedicated, uh, entire episodes, uh, Two questions we've gotten in, either either through folks we know who listen in, and uh, as well as folks we don't know who listen in, and that's that's just been a real pleasure. So we encourage you to get in touch with us, and thank you for listening. Thanks. And if any of your listeners out there have know of a study about Helms versus Diablo Canyon, please send that link over to that email address because I'd be very interested to read that. Thank you.